This is Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 656. And the quote of the day is, work until your idols become your equals. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here, episode 656. I hope all is well in your world. And this is a re-release of an episode that I did in January of 2017 with the man, Keith Carlock. And this, this episode, I met Keith in 2016 at the 55 Bar in New York City, got his email address, and we emailed back and forth for almost two years before this, uh, before this came out. So I, I, I really wanted to get him on the podcast and this was such a great episode. I was actually listening to it the other day and was thinking, wow, this came out five years ago and there's so much great information in this episode. And I thought it would be criminal not to bring it back to the top and, and re-release it. So this is the great Keith Carlock, and we talk about all kinds of stuff like how he got the gig with uh, with Steely Dan and studying under Ed Sof and getting the Wayne Krantz gig and all sorts of stuff. And and Keith has an eloquent way of talking about all of the the phrasing and and just sort of the style that he plays with because I think there is no one else on the planet who sounds like Keith. So. I'm going to stop rambling. I'm going to get into it with the one, the only Mr. Keith Carlock. Keith, how are you? Thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Oh, I'm great, Nick. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. Absolutely. It took us a little, a little while to line it up. And, and I found that, you know, it normally ends up being that way. Either I cancel or someone else has to cancel or it's like, hey, can you talk to me later? You know, and so I'm, I'm glad that we got to, uh, we finally got to line it up though. Really excited to have you. Yeah, me too. Thanks. It, and thanks for your, you know, patience and persistence making it happen. <laughs> sure, man. Sure. I've won, like I said, I've wanted to have you on for a while and get a lot of requests to have you on for a while. So definitely, definitely a pleasure to have you. Um, so for for the people who I don't I don't think there's anybody listening who doesn't know who you are, but um, if if they don't or you know they don't know too much about, you, let's just build sort of a little bit of your of your backstory where you grew up. I know you went to North Texas Tech, um, and you studied with Ed Sof and all that, right? Yeah, it was actually North Texas State. I always say that. I always say North Texas Tech, and I know that it's North Texas State. I know I think that there is a there might be a Texas Tech. There sounds. is, and I don't know why I always say Texas Tech, but I know it's I know it's North Texas State. I've had Ed on here, and I, like, just I don't know. I always say that. <laughs> Actually, when when I was there, they changed the name to University of North Texas, but I always knew it as North Texas State growing up. You know, from my teachers and people that turned me on to that school. But yeah, I I actually um, I grew up in the South. I grew up in Mississippi in a small town um, outside of Jackson. Clinton was the name of the city. And um, there wasn't anything going on there. <laughs> so it, it was great to a place to grow up and to be, you know, I, I kind of was one of those weird kids that knew what I wanted to do from a really early young age. Um, and it, it was a good place to, to be. Um, there was a lot of music going on. Um, there's a lot of history there and, and, 
you know, I learned more about it as I got older, but, um, you know, there wasn't much else to do. So I found my passion really, really young and, and found, you know, it kind of was self-taught at the beginning. Um, and then I found some great teachers along the way and, and, um, you know, football is a big deal down there. So there was, you know, the marching bands and that I, I was a part of right away in school when I got old enough. And so the rudimental, you know, stuff was, was really big in my upbringing, um, drum corps and all that stuff. And, uh, and I started playing in bands. I mean, I was, I was in a garage band by, I don't know, by the time I was nine or 10. How I was going to say, how old were you when you started playing? Yeah, I think I, I had, I had toy drum kits when I was probably three or four. I would say five was when I probably got more serious about it and, mm -hmm. you know, found some teachers soon after that. Um, but, you know, I got a snare drum first and then it, it developed into those toy kits that lasted like a day, you know, the paper <laughs> right. heads and right, right. <laughs> those awful sounding symbols. And, but, um, you know, I, I eventually met some neighborhood friends and we started a band and, and um, they needed a drummer. So it's just the rest is history. I mean, I, I thought that was very, um, a, a very, very fortunate thing for me to be at such a young age playing with musicians that were older than me and that were teaching me kind of what it, what it meant to play in a rhythm section and locking in with the bass player and all mm -hmm. that kind of stuff, you know. Um, Cause I, I was like 10, 11, 12 and the, these, I was playing with 30 year olds and, and doing, Oh wow. Eventually playing. When you said older, I was thinking like, <laughs> like but playing in 14, clubs. 18. Yeah. But yeah, it was crazy. My parents were really supportive and they, they were having fun with it, I think. Um, so anyway, I don't want to bore you with too much of that, but, but that's, that's kind of how it started. And then, um, but did you feel like you were just, you excelled faster than everyone? You just had an affinity for it or like. Was it, was it, or I guess what I'm asking, was it just like raw talent or were you just practicing, you know, hours and hours and hours every day? Um, I was never uh, a crazy practicer, although I, I practiced as much as I could fit, fitting it in around school and, and activities that were going on. But, um, I mean, I certainly played every day and I think I had a knack for, for, you know, I had an ear for it. I could, I could kind of figure out what the drummer was doing, uh, for the most part, um, pretty quickly. And then, um, you know, later I would figure out what was going on better having teachers that helped me with that as well, developing my ear and yes. hearing subtleties and what all that stuff was. But I don't know. I don't know if I was any quicker than anyone else. I just had a passion for it and I, I just loved it so much. And, um, it just worked really hard. I'm I'm interested to know also what what you were listening to at the time, and the reason why I say it, I think that you have such a definitive sound. Like when I hear, like I just hear the drums, and I'm like, okay, that's Keith. I always know it is. Like you have this, like this loose sort of. It feels like you're sort of like bouncing on top of the drums. I guess is the best way that I could really describe it, and it's like. It grooves, but it has like this free, like airy feel to it. Like, wh where did that come from? How did you develop that? Um, well, you know, I think it comes from all the different phases and and periods of my development. It it gradually got to that point, but um, 
I started out listening to a lot of R&B and soul and, and uh, groove music and then later got into the rock thing pretty heavily and prog rock and, and that led to you know jazz rock or fusion and then and then I went back and studied more of the bebop jazz players and once I got to college at North Texas State and um you know Ed Sof kind of turned my whole thing around I mean that just was a big game changer for me studying with him and um and kind of you know learning what improvisation was about and thinking about drums in a more musical way than than just you know, playing just patterns and grooves and stickings and thinking of it like that. It, it kind of opened me up to thinking in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think once I I learned some some jazz playing and, and that kind of came into my repertoire or my bag of tricks, I, I kind of just mixed it all together. And so that looseness you're talking about, I think, is probably from that period. Um because you know he taught me the molar technique and it's so if i'm talking about mm-hmm. um and that just loosened the sound up and and just the the technique just kind of changed um the sound so much and um so i think that's part of it and and just putting myself into situations where i could find uh whatever this whatever I, my sound was going to be you know? right. and i think playing with um you know fast forwarding pretty far along uh, playing with wayne krantz and that trio gave me the opportunity to to stretch out and you know even though it was groove bass we were really breaking up the time and and I, I was forced to find ways to play groove that wasn't so repetitive and you know um so that that became a band, you know, a trio with Wayne right. and Tim LaFave. And, and, uh, that just kind of allowed me to find this sound that I think you're talking about. I think that's, that's where I would say it, it eventually started there and came from that band. And you purposely came to New York to play with Wayne, right? That was like one of the goals. It was one of the goals. Yeah. I, I was such a fan. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I one of the first things I did was I went to see him at the fifty five after I moved there and, and mm-hmm. just introduced myself and and um, without being arrogant or <laughs> or a drag, you know, I just told him I'd I'd love to play sometime. And, um, I think it was perfect timing. He was kind of looking to change the band around, and um, I don't know. I guess he had someone maybe told him I, I i wasn't horrible and that maybe it's worth worth getting together with me i don't know but he just called me up and we finally got together and just played duo and you know the rest is history from that too it's pretty amazing uh, that i and i had nate wood on the on the show and it i feel like well two things one i don't feel like wayne gets enough credit but i sort of he's like the he's sort of like the rite of passage you know like all these people sort of come to new york and want to play with wayne and and start playing with Wayne and then like get some other crazy gig out of it. Or just like, I feel like once you're, once you've played with Wayne, you're sort of, you know, you're, uh, you're validated in, in some weird way, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, I think you're exactly right. I think, you know, he's like, it's kind of like the modern day Miles Davis or something, you know, right. Right. It's, it's kind of like that in a way. Um, 
I feel really fortunate that I, I was a part of that group for so as long as I was. And um, I feel like we really developed something mostly through his vision. You know, I was just lucky to be there, but, but it, it really became a band and, and a sound. And, um, and I, you know, I really think a lot of the way that I play comes from being in that band and having that experience. And we played, you know, so much back in those days. Mm -hmm. We were playing. How challenging of a band was that to play? It was very challenging. I mean, Wayne's rhythmic thing on the guitar is is very unique. Um, and it took me a while to understand where it was coming from, you know. Right. I mean, he, we definitely hooked up pretty quickly as far as how we felt time. But he just hears things backwards, you know. It's like, you know, sometimes if you turn on a record and, and you don't know where the one is, you can hear it in different places. Like right. You know, like it can kind of trick you how something starts. Mm hmm in a weird place and you're thinking oh this is where one is and then it really isn't but you're hearing it backwards and, sure sure and it, it can actually sound really good backwards <laughs> but um that's kind of how how it is with him sometimes you'll hear you'll think you know where he is but it's it's totally not where you think it is so it's he just has a unique way of hearing rhythms and where he where he stresses certain notes and it's just very unique he has his own thing and um so that I learned a lot from that. And just, you know, the longer we played together, the more it just became a real chemistry. And, um, I, you know, just learned so much from playing with him. Yeah. I, I yeah. saw you guys, um, oh man, this was probably, I don't know how long, how long ago this was, uh, probably like three years ago, Daniel glass and I came out to see you guys. Um, and I'd never, I'd never seen you and Nate, uh, and Wayne play together. And I was just blown away, but like, I, I understand where you're, what you're saying. And obviously you're, you know, all that material a lot more intimately than I do, but like just hearing it and saying like, wow, this could like, you could sort of hear this a bunch of different ways. It is, it, it's definitely, it's hard to explain, but definitely uh, I understand what you're saying. It's, 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 it's amazing. I mean, just the stuff that, the stuff that Wayne does is pretty, pretty intense. Yeah, definitely good. Um, there, so then from, from there, uh, there, were, there was sort of like a chance running in a, with uh with Fagan, right? For for Steely Dan. Yeah, that's that's how I met those guys. Um, I'm a huge uh, Steely Dan fan, just for the record. I just, oh yeah, I just too. like to put that. Out. I mean, people were you know like for years it was like who would you want to play with, and I'm like Steely Dan is probably at the top of the list, so definitely a big. Yeah, fan. it's it's quite the gig. Um, it's amazing, but yeah, that's how I met Donald and Walters through through Wayne, um, originally, um, as you probably know, Wayne worked with them mm -hmm. uh, on a tour in 96, I think, I think that was the year. And that was, um, that's the year I moved to New York. And so we started playing soon after that. So they were, you know, they were still in touch and, and, um, Donald and Walter, I, I can remember them coming down to the 55, um, on various Thursday nights, just checking out the band. Um, and Donald wanted to sit in one night. I, I think, um, he and Wayne got together and just went through some of the heads and, and, um, you, you know, it was very cool that, that, that Donald wanted to actually learn the music and not just come in and jam, you know, he wanted mm -hmm. to learn the heads and, um, and I remember he, he sat right in front of me, we faced each other and he played the roads that was there at the bar is always there. Um, it's like the house roads and Will Lee was playing bass 
you know, I had just moved to New York. I mean, not even a year. I had been, I don't know, I'd been there less than a year. And here I am playing with three of my heroes at this little dive bar. You know? Insane. <laughs> so, yeah, I was kind of, I was freaking out a little bit. But um, And how old were you at the time? Oh, man. Because um, th- what, year, what year was that? That was probably, if it wasn't 96, it would have been 97. Okay, um, so that was like, what, I guess a couple years before Two Against Nature came out? Yeah, Two Against Nature came out. Um, like 99 or 2000? Two, 2000. Yeah. Um, but they started recording it in like, like 98. Okay. Like, they spent a couple of years on that. <laughs> started, started in 93. And <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, uh, I don't know how old I was, but I, I guess I was, you know, late 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm 45 now, so do the math, figure it out. Right. Um, yeah, so that was incredible. You know, I, I could have just, my career could have ended that night and I would have been happy. That was, it was amazing just to, to be in New York city and playing with those guys. And, um, you know, I gotta say, man, uh, that was like just that band playing every Thursday, it just created this buzz that was a very exciting thing to be a part of at that time. And it, it attracted a lot of great musicians. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it just it felt like everyone at some point came down to that gig. And so um, it was very exciting, you know, just, just to be a part of something like that, that was, that was attracting so much attention in the city, mm-hmm. you know, downtown and, and just, um, being a part of something like that was very, very special. Um, so what's but, the, what's the approach? Sorry, were you going to say, I didn't want to cut you off. No, no, go ahead. School. What, like, what's the approach if you, so you're whatever, you're in your late twenties and, uh, Becker and Fagan come in, they sit there playing. Like, what are, are you like, man, I, I want to show them like all the shit I can play. <laughs> or is it like, Oh man, I better, I better lay back and just, and just, uh, and just not make any waves back here because you want to be known. You want to like, you want to stand out. You want them to remember you. Yeah. I, you know, I, I don't remember thinking too much. I just, I just knew I'd, I'd better play well and not suck. You know? Right. <laughs> and, um, you know, I really just wanted to play Wayne's music, um, the way I always had and just have a good night. You know, I, I don't, I don't remember much more than that. Um, they eventually um, invited us to to record at their. They had a studio in the Upper East Side called River Sound for a long time. Uh, I don't think it's there anymore, but they invited us to come record. They were going to just kind of listen and maybe produce something. I'm not really sure. It was always vague as to what the outcome was going to be, but we did go in and record there, and they were both there, um, and. Nothing really came out of it. Wayne never used it. I don't think he liked the vibe of the sounds or, or maybe we just weren't playing our best. I'm not sure. He just decided not to use any of it. But it was certainly cool to be around those guys and see how they work in the studio. And I and I think that maybe is what gave them the idea to give me a shot at the Two Against Nature record. And, um, you know, they saw how I worked in the studio with with that situation mm-hmm. um so i think that was a way for them to kind of get that idea in their heads i i would guess 
right, right, right. Um, so th- yeah, that's how it all started. They just called me to do a couple of tracks on that record, and um, they ended up using one of them, the title cut. And then um, I thought maybe that was it. <laughs> it was great to be on the record. I was very excited to be on a Steely Dan record. Um, but uh, then a, a few years later, uh, they called me to, to come in and do a tune um, that was going to be on um, a Joni Mitchell tribute record. Um that they were going to submit the song for, I believe. And um, we did the song Carrie from the blue record. And it was very Steely Dan esque, obviously. Right. <laughs> I mean, they made it, they made it their, their sound. And it was, it was very um, cool. It just came together really quickly um, with everyone playing in the room together. And I think for them to actually do one track like that in a day and then just overdub, and finish a song like that, I think maybe, maybe it was exciting for them because they, I don't know if they'd really done something like in that way before. Yeah, you know, weren't they, they, they were sort of like mad scientists in the studio. Yeah. Right? And yeah, just bringing different rhythm sections in and, and picking the ones they liked. And this was just really quick for them. And I, maybe they liked it. Um, I'm assuming they did because they ended up doing um, Everything Must Go, which was the next record mm-hmm. uh, that came out in 03. But they ended up, using the same guys for the whole record pretty much they brought in a few guest players but the rhythm section was the same um and so we would do like two or three songs at a time and then they would go away and finish finish them out overdub and add to it what they're going to add to it and then um call us back to do a couple more and it just kept going which i was always nervous that they wouldn't call me back but they right. kept coming back and, and uh so were you touring with them at the time or were you just working no, on the records no just working on on this new record huh. and then um it we you know that that was done and then uh and then they asked me to tour on that tour uh i'll never forget walter calling me and inviting me on the road and um I hung up and started jumping up and down. I had a roommate at the time and we were, we were going nuts. <laughs> and, um, but it, it was, let's see, I guess that was the 2003 tour. Yeah. That's the first tour I did. And, um, and yeah, I've been there for every tour ever since. Nice. It's, it's been the most consistent giving gig. It's just been pretty amazing. And not to mention other gigs. I'm sure that have come out of that. Like, is that, I mean, you know, you had the John Mayer gig for a while uh it would i mean did that come out of the did that come out of steely dan or was that just the sort of a circumstantial thing um well i think everything if you i'm sure it all connects to steely dan in some way because they they kind of put me on that that kind of map that Mm -hmm. um you know more high profile kind of gig like that and so um you know that the, the gig that i did right after that was sting for a couple of years and and um which that came from Sealy dan um the the word just kind of got out that i was this new guy i suppose and um and his management came to one of the shows and um just told him about me and um he just hired me from the recommendation there was no there was no um audition 
at all. Oh, really? Yeah. So that was that was kind of interesting and cool that that he you know that he kind of works that way at least now or go mm-hmm. back in that time. Um, but that that was an amazing experience. I learned so much from that, of course. Of course. And, um, but yeah, I mean, all these these other things. I mean, James Taylor came from you know that school. I think he heard about me through Steely and other people recommending me. And mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm not sure about John, but I, you know, I think um, you. I also kind of get to know a lot of the um, the crews and the like the, you know, the tour managers and they, it's all kind of a small world. They all kind of work together or know each other. And, right, right, right. And they, you know, so they've been really cool about recommending me for stuff too, uh, within their circles, you know? Sure. So it could have been some of that as well. And, and that like, all that comes down to attitude too, you know, like it, I, I'm a firm believer that no matter how good of a player you are, if everybody's like, man, you don't want to work with Keith, you know, he's kind of a, of a dick you know like i just i just think that the, those less and less gigs come come through you know where it's like yeah he's great but man he's just really hard to work with or whatever you know i was just talking to this uh who was i talking to about oh the um steve rennie who used to manage incubus you know like my buddy is in a band they all they were auditioning a guitar player and he's like before we go on tour we like have simpsons trivia and do all this crazy stuff because like we want to make sure this guy fits in with our mold and is a and is a cool guy, you know. Like yeah. we can find a good guitar player, right? But that's not going to be the hardest part. <laughs> no, it's so true. I mean, I know we've we've all heard this many times, but it really is. Um, you know, you're hanging more than you're playing music, you know, because the the show's two hours of the day if there is, if it is a show day, and then the rest is just you no. Know, you kind of become a family, so you got to obviously. You can't be a dick. (laughs) You got to at least be someone that people don't mind being around, you know. Um, And, you know, you just kind of learn personalities. You learn, I mean, you're going to be around every type and just kind of figure out how to adapt to each one. That's that's how I look at it. I try to, um, just as I do in the music, I try to just adapt to whatever it needs and whatever this person may need for me to, you know, I try to be myself always, but, um, certain people need space. Certain people want to hang more. So Mm -hmm. you just, you figure it out and, um, that's just part of the gig. It really is. Sure. Um, I want to, I want to switch gears a little bit and I usually, I, I usually don't get too deep into like technical talk and like, you know, physical things behind the drums and all that. But you have um, you wrote or you have this DVD, the the phrasing DVD, um, mm-hmm. the the big picture is like phrasing, improvisation, style, and technique. Um, so when when this came out, I it's such a weird thing for me to say now, but I literally was like just getting my head around what phrasing really was, and it totally opened up my totally opened up my eyes completely and then like you came out with this around the same time and i was like oh my god this is like this is and can you just sort of this is going to be really hard for you to do but but explain explain sort of the concept of phrasing and and really how it can open up the doors to your playing because i i know for me when i when i actually found out that like phrasing was even a thing what sounds stupid to say but like to, to realize that you can play all of these things differently and all that, it just totally opened up my playing. 
Yeah. Um, well, and that's a loaded question. I realized that in advance, but well, um, I would also say, you know, there's the way that singers sing the way that horn players play, you know, it's, um, checking all that out will certainly make it, it'll help these things make sense. Um, the length of notes and, you know, um, over the bar line phrasing that we, we probably have talked about a lot and heard drummers do, um, you know, keeping, knowing where the one is at all times. And, um, with, with Krantz, you know, we always played in eight bar phrases and, um, whether we made it really obvious or not, that's, that's how we stay connected. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm, I wasn't like hitting a big one at the end of every eight bars. Um, but, being able to internalize where you are at all times. That's how we, uh, that's basically our form in that band. Um, and, and it's endless what we can do with that simple little form. Um, so, and the cues that he would have in the band, you know, changing tempos and, and going to different sounds or, or different vibes were, were always, um, were able to be done because we knew where we were in the phrase. So right. that's one way of looking at phrasing. And then, um, and having, you know, uh, when I play the more broken stuff, when I can, you know, like with Wayne or th- those type of gigs where I, I have more freedom, um, I'm, I'm thinking of the, the, the kick with the right foot and the left hand and, the left foot and the hi hat as they're kind of creating phrases together. They're communicating, uh, and the ride symbols, just kind of holding it all together. Um, so, you know, I might just kind of like one, two, three, four, okay. I repeated that. Right. Kind of. Mm-hmm. And the third time, maybe it'll um, it'll be a variation. Do 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 get to get to do 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 get to get to do to get 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 to get to get to do 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 swan right. So that's a that's a phrase. Um, does that make sense? Totally. So that's like two. Let's see. Yeah. So that's like an eight bar phrase. Meaning, so the first two bars. And the second two bars are kind of a, uh, a repeating section. And then the fifth and sixth bar will be like a variation. And the seven and eight will go back to um, what the original idea was. That's just one way of looking at like an A-A-B-A kind of phrase. Right. You know what I mean? So, so it's opening up and sort of elongating all of your playing that you're doing rather than saying, you know, rather than just playing boom, boom, cop, boom, 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 cop, and just sort of, you know, re- repeating a, a two-bar phrase over and over and over again. Right. Right. Or a two-beat oh. phrase, I should say. You know, and that's just, that's just one idea that comes to my head. I mean, and, and it's kind of corny to sit here and sing to you a little beat, but, <laughs> well, <no. laughs> but, but you know, that's, that's kind of like, if I just sit down and I have to play a solo, I'm going to start by setting up something that's, that's uh, 
groovy and has some kind of repetition. And then, and then that sets it up for me to take it somewhere else. And then I can always come back to that to reset and then go somewhere else, find something new. And then I can always come back to that theme, um, uh, you know, and then maybe if, if I don't know what else to say, I'll just completely just press the reset button and go to a different tempo or, or different sound, you know, or, um, playing toms as melodies, Mm -hmm. you know, I always used to think of, of all the drums is just a way to play your licks and fills when I was first starting out. And then when I, when I really started studying more jazz and, you know, studying with Ed and things like that, just thinking of the drums as more of a melodic instrument, sure. you know, you can play little bass lines on those toms or just, you know, whatever you come up with, it's that can kind of set up something for you to create from. It's just, you know, it's just fun to sit down and just try to come up with something off off the top of your head and right and, right and and give yourself sort of sort of some sort of foundation to where you're not cuz i think a, a a misconception is that a lot of times when people are soloing or even playing grooves they're it's just like it's just all of this stuff that they're just spontaneously pulling out of their heads mm-hmm. and i they're I, I, th- I guess the misconception is that there's not sort of a foundation there. There's not something that's being built on top of something else or, you know, something that at least some a bit. I don't, and I don't want to say preconceived, but but some I'll use the word preconceived, uh, whether it be foundation or, or groove or idea or thought or something like that. That is sort of the catalyst for the rest of what's going on. Right if that makes sense. That was a long winded way of really saying nothing. <laughs> no, I, you know, I think, um, I hear a, a lot of, of that when I hear some of the younger players, um, I think, um, I, I just, my thing is just to try to find something that, has a purpose and and has some kind of musical uh composition sound to it or vibe like just what, um what specifically do you do you hear with with younger players um a lot of facility and um a lot of thinking a lot of um self gratification you know just kind of not as much of a team player. And I'm not saying all of them are like this. It's just, it's just, you know, um, I think that, um, you know, you can just tell if they're really seasoned pros that have played with a lot of musicians or they, or versus, you know, someone that's just kind of played in their practice room for hours on, on end and hasn't had as much experience playing in a band, you know, does that make sense? Totally. So. Do you, do you think that, that YouTube and the internet has changed that landscape? Maybe. I mean, I don't sit there and check it out that much, but I have a feeling it does. I, I, I think, um, well, and the reason why I asked, because years ago, you know, 30 years ago, if you were doing all this crazy stuff on the kit, unless you were playing out, nobody would ever see it. Yeah. And so there's no, you're not getting any praise for it. You're not getting any likes or follows on Instagram or anything like that. But now if you have crazy facility, 
you can put it out on YouTube or Instagram or Twitter and get a lot of praise for it and never have to leave your house. Right, right. And, no, and it's, it's definitely an amazing tool. Totally, know? totally. And, yeah. and I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm negatively, uh, like I'm putting a negative connotation on it. I was just kind of curious what your thoughts were about it. Yeah, um, I, I don't, you know, if, if someone does that and they get a lot of attention, I don't know if that's going to create a career for them. But I, I think uh, it's great to have that that kind of, uh, you know, uh, encouragement from people out there to, you know, that maybe you're on to something and, and uh, you know what I mean? Like, I think just trying to find something positive out of it. Uh, I don't know if, uh, if someone's going to be going on there looking for their next drummer um, to see who can play, you know, the most crazy chops and, and uh, you know, I don't know. Right, maybe, right. maybe there are people that do that, but I, I, I haven't heard of that. Uh, but that might be what is happening. I'm just so old school. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, you know. No, I, I, I get it. I think just... This is and this is my opinion. I think that the it's amazing that there's this landscape that's out there that all of this technology that, you know, if you, Keith Carlock, have never played a gig before and you have the skills and you have the ability, you can put together a decent online presence that can showcase all of those skills. Right. And that I think is amazing and I think that you could get gigs from that. And I think that now the 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 praise that's coming from things that are not necessarily getting you closer to getting a gig are sort of the detriment of what's going on. You know, there, that's the, that's the area where I think it's, I think people are thinking that, Oh, I'm getting all these likes and I'm getting all these shares and all that stuff. That must mean that, you know, I'm getting better as a, as a drummer and, and physically and technically you may be, but musically and and sort of real world music experience, you're definitely not. Yeah, you yeah. Know? Well said. I mean, that's kind of what I was trying to to say, you know. And I'm not. I don't mean to be negative on it at all. Um, it's just that that it's so things are so different now, and this is another tool that I think if you do it uh, in a mature way and you uh, think it through and and really make it put something together really really well. It it really might be the way things things are are going. I mean, I mean, and I know it's you know not that it hasn't already gone there, but I think, um, like you say, it's one of the only ways to get to get yourself heard for right. sure. And I and not to beat the dead horse, but you the one word you said is tool. It's a tool. It doesn't replace all of the other stuff that you need to do. It's another tool in your arsenal to mm -hmm. to sort of go out and and help promote yourself. So. Right. God, it makes it just feel old because, you know, that's not what we did. <laughs> you know what I mean? I know. <laughs> I know. I mean, I feel I feel old talking. I'm like, I said that I would never be one of those guys, but I'm not. But the thing is, I'm not I'm not one of these. I mean, I'm only 35, but I'm I'm not one of these guys that's going to like poo poo on new technology. Like I have a I have a podcast. You know what I mean? <laughs> so and I love technology. And I think that if you use it correctly, I think it's amazing. I think it it levels the playing field. I think that it it gives a, a lot of people a lot of opportunities that may have never had those opportunities. I, so I definitely, I am 100% all for technology and the way that everything is going. I just, I get scared that 
that the technology is going to replace the in-person uh, interaction. That's what that's what scares me, and I'm try- I'm trying to sort of avoid younger players getting going down that road of like avoiding playing out, you know, like playing a gig for for free at like the local fire company when they're ten. Right. You know, like I want them to do that. Right. Right. So. Yeah. Well, I think uh, it's amazing what you can do, and I and I. I need to embrace it a little more than I probably do. Um, but I just come from, you know, right before all this stuff started to happen. So my, I just kind of got in there at the last minute, I think, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. Like the door <laughs> shut and you're like, wait, wait, let me. <laughs> so I got you. I got you. <laughs> um, so question. Now this is a super technical question and I would, I have to ask you because, uh, I think people would kill me if I didn't. So what what is the I'm gonna I'm just gonna call it for lack of a better word, the Keith Carlock lick. You have this <laughs> you have this this thing that you play and then what I think is amazing that you not now you not only play it but then you play it upside down, inside out, backwards and every way possible. And it's like I I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, right? Like the the combination, the hand foot yeah. combination uh-huh. thing. Yeah, um, I um, listened to a lot of Elvin, and um, that was kind of my way of trying to do that thing, he, that rolling thing that he does around the drums um, that you really can't write out. You know, it's kind of just more of a like a phrasing thing and a feel thing, and it's just kind of this this freight train coming down. Then he hits this big one. You know, it's right. it's, it's such an effective sound, and I guess. You know the way I play it is more in a grid, so maybe you do you can kind of write it out, but <laughs> if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, it's it's just if you break it down, um, it's uh, I've been asked this so many times, and I still have to think about how do I focus? <laughs> it's a dork. Uh, so it's like two two kicks, like two bass drum, right left on whatever instrument you want so mm-hmm. it's uh da, da, ba, ba, you know mm-hmm. can you hear that yep. um and then a roll in between so so it's like uh and then just what like so a double, it's, double, if, like it's a double right, left, if you the easiest way to think of it is right left right right left left and then kick kick right left right right left left kick kick right right no, sorry. Kick, kick, right, left, right, right, left, left. Kick, kick, right, left, right, right, left, left. That's the first way to kind of figure it out. Does that make sense? Sure. So it's, so it's kick, kick, right, left, right, right, left, left. Right. And then that right, right, left, left can double or triple. It can it can be a longer roll uh, depending on where you want to place those the other accent part. I just kind of think of that kick, two kicks and, and right, left is kind of the accent. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember talking about this in my video way back when that uh, you talked about the DVD right. and um, a guy and it was filmed in front of an audience and the guy was like, um, so it's a paradiddle diddle, right? And I'm like, oh, is it? I don't even know. I'm not even thinking of it that way. <laughs> so so if, if you want to break it down, I think that's what's happening. Mm-hmm. Was that something that you that you wrote or that just kind of came out? And then you were like, oh, shoot, I got to figure that out. Or was it like, was it, was it written or was it, it just came naturally sometime and you were like, oh, let me try to. 
now I got to like figure out exactly what this is. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's probably why I sound like, you know, I never went to school because <laughs> it, it, it kind of just happened, uh, um, as a lot of things do when I play things just kind of accidentally happen or I might go for something and then it's, it came out a little differently than I expected it to. And then I, I'm like, Oh, that sounds cool. Let's figure out what that is. Or, um, you know, just things that happen by chance. And that was probably one of the things that, that was kept happening. And then I finally had to figure out, okay, what's happening here. And, and, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, it didn't start by, um, any kind of thing. I, I, I try not to think about things too much, you know? <laughs> um, and then when I had to start, you know, talking realizing about it, then, then I, then I figure out a way, but, um, but yeah, it's, that's basically what it is. And, and the things that you can do with it, it's the, the, the important thing is, to, is for it to uh, dynamically sound right. And, and it has a certain flow to it. You know, mm -hmm. it's not, it, as with anything, it's not just the stickings, it's, it's getting the right feel and um, the role being strong and, and, um, you know, sounding, sounding more like singles than, you know, really strong singles all the way around. Right. And, you know, I think <laughs> a lot of times we as drum, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely guilty of it too. It's like you learn something or you'll hear something and say, okay, let me try to mimic this thing. And then you mimic it and then you walk out onto the stage and then you try to play it and like either fall flat on your face or you land it. And then you're like, why did I just play that? Right. I, like I just totally tried to like fit this thing in because I just learned it yesterday, and you know what I mean. Like, uh, I I think I'm 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 guessing that you suffer less and less of that than than uh than the rest of us. But <laughs> no, I mean I, that's what the practice room is for, <laughs> right? <laughs> and then on the gig, I you know, I mean it depends on the gig, obviously. Uh, it, with something like Wayne, I'm going to go for stuff. But it, but if right. it's it's like getting it's, a new shirt, you're like, man, I want to wear it. <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> but um yeah, man. Uh that's funny. I I it's it's really become uh, a very signature thing, although, you know, I don't know if it's um if it if it really is or not. I mean, it it people will kind of associate that with me so cuz I play it so much, obviously. But, but, but I mean, uh, I I I yeah, I think that I think it it's it's part of your sound, you know, totally. Which is, I think it's great. Not that you needed my, not that you needed my approval or anything, but uh, <laughs> but uh, it's good to get your approval, Nick. <laughs> but no, I mean, I think it, I think it, uh, you've made it your own. But isn't that what being an artist is all about? It's sort of, you know, when you steal from one person, it's plagiarism. When you steal from a bunch of people, it's art. Right. That's true. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Just taking little bits and pieces from each influence. Sure. And change change it up a little bit so it's not, you know, so you're not just completely copying it. Right. Just change one little thing about it. Mm -hmm. Make it or your the, own. And... Or just the voicing on the kit, you know. Mm -hmm. Are you ready for your first kit? Or are you a teacher with beginning drum students? The all-new Mapex Venus Series Complete Drum Kit presents an all-inclusive setup for the first-time player ready to start that drummer-for-life adventure. 
Mapex is dedicating to produce exactly what drummers need to succeed at all levels. And Venus starts the young and hungry player with a five-piece shell pack, complete with a matching snare drum, and outfitted with a complete set of stands and pedals, cymbals, and a drummer's throne, and even their first pair of drumsticks, all at an affordable price. Contact your favorite Mapex retailer to find out more. With Mapex Venus Series, you can start here and arrive anywhere on your adventure to become a drummer for life. You had mentioned practice, you know, being in the practice room. Um, what's your what's your approach on practicing? How do you and how do you suggest sort of? Let's just take for example, if someone's like, "Oh, okay, I'm gonna I want to go into the practice room now, and I want to learn this this lick that Keith was just talking about." One. Uh, what is your approach to practicing? And two, what is your approach for knowing sort of when it's ready to to actually maybe start taking a chance with it live? Well, repetition, like anything, uh, just have to get it, the muscle memory and, and play it over and over and over and find ways to, to, to fit it into whatever gig you're doing. Um, you know, as far as practicing, I mean, I, I, uh, more so these days than back in the old days, I I'm just practicing whatever I need to learn for the next session or the next gig, or, or maybe I'm learning someone's music, um, for a show or wh whatever it may be. And so I just kind of be as prepared as I can and really know the music. I always want to come in prepared and not waste anybody's time. I want them to, uh, I, my goal would be for them to feel like, man, we didn't even need to rehearse. You got sure. it. You know, that's, that's what I want them to feel like. I got their back. It's going to be cool. You know, if there's not time to, to do all that preparation, then I, I do whatever I can, you know, mm -hmm. I just fit in whatever I can to, to really know um, the music. Um, and then also practicing your weaknesses. I mean, it's easy to just go in there and start wailing away and having fun. There, there needs to be some of that just to maintain what you have and, and to, to just, just play, you know, mm -hmm. and just really not think about what you're going to play. Um, try not to just repeat yourself all the time. Try to at least find something new, even if it's just one little idea uh, each time you sit down and play. Just something that you maybe haven't played before so that you're not just playing everything you know already. You know, you got to maintain that. So, but you also have to just always search for something just a little different. Um, uh, and then whatever your weaknesses are, like I said, maybe it's really, really slow tempos, um, keeping them steady or really, really fast tempos or, um, cause we tend to be cool with the medium tempos and the, you know, around 100 <laughs> to 120, cause that's what most of the tempos are going to be in pop music. You know, those are usually cool. It's just the stuff that's really, really slow that can, can really be hard, you know? So underrated. Just oh my god like it can playing so at like 50 beats a minute that's like just so much space oh yeah yeah and you, you have to you have to feel that space in between the notes and that's that's man that's like that's real practice right there just playing simple grooves at that kind of tempo i mean that's mm -hmm. crazy but that's that's good stuff um and it only makes you stronger when you go to the tempos that are easier for you it just makes your time stronger right i mean there's because you're you're building your internal metronome you're hearing all this space and it's magnifying sort of you know when you 
if you take something and you're playing it at you know 110 120 it maybe has ghost notes in it or something like that you slow it down to 50 you're like oh man those ghost notes are actually really sloppy yeah or you know or whatever the case may be it's like it's like taking a magnifying glass and just really looking at like every analyzing every piece of what you're playing which is it's super super beneficial yeah and of course it's always good to just start slow in general when you're learning something new mm-hmm. and master it at a slower tempo, then it's going to be so much easier as you, as you speed it up because right. you've really, you've mastered the placement of, or at least you, you want to be able to get to that place where you master the placement of where the ghost notes are supposed to be. And, um, and the, the placement should stay the same. You just speed it up, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. I, you know, I remember years ago when I was probably in like my teens, uh, like playing ghost notes and then, you know, my instructor was like, you do realize that those notes have note values too. Right. They're not just like, I mean, it depends. Like if you're like, you know, maybe in New Orleans or, you know, they don't, but, but like if you're playing ghost notes between, between, you know, your accented notes, like those are, those are real note values. Mm -hmm. And if you can lock in those ghost notes with the correct note value and they're not all over the place, it's like your time is going to improve so much. And it never even occurred to me you know, that like, oh, those are actually you know, 30 second notes or whatever they were. Right. You know, it's like just locking in on all that stuff. And, and it totally just made my playing so much more because I would try to play ghost notes because I would hear everybody else playing ghost notes. But then I would play and I just felt like I was like sloppy. Yeah, no, it's so true. I mean, those those have to line up within within the grid, so to speak. I mean, they have to be in the right place. Right. And then, I mean, sloppy the word sloppy can be cool. I mean, it depends on the vibe. I mean, if you, if there's, there's a way to make things feel loose and less rigid. It depends on the music, you know, of mm-hmm. course it depends on, um, like you mentioned, new Orleans. I mean, that, that you can play more in the cracks with that stuff and, and it can be okay. It still has to be consistent though. You know, right. if it's not consistent, then it sounds wrong. Right. <laughs> so whatever it is, it has to be consistent. So you just got to know, what it is you're going for you mm-hmm. know what i mean right right um, but yeah that's that's the kind of stuff i think about a lot um and and i've i've just been in a lot, a lot of situations where um where i can practice it on the gig you know like i always think that i'm practicing even on a gig because i am i mean i'm kind of uh especially if it's new music i'm still kind of uh getting grips on and um and every night it gets better, you know, like mm-hmm. on a tour. Uh, how do you, how do you learn new music? Do you just play along with it or do you chart it or do you? It depends. Um, sometimes people will send charts, but if they don't, um, I'll usually write something out if it's complicated. Um, like the number system or do you like actually? No, no, I'll, I'll try it out like a form chart, you okay. know, just numbers just of bars and write little notes for kicks and, and where to put the fills or, or, you know, hi-hat this section, ride this section, whatever, whatever I need to make note of, um, the way it ends, the way it begins, tempo mm-hmm. markings, you know, things like that. Um, and then I find that after I've written that, that then I kind of almost memorized it. Cause if you go through that process of writing it all down, you kind of make a mental note and it, I, I, I kind of have it already, but I, I just have that there just in case. I'm like, oh wait, how does this end again? You know, or something. Right, right. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah. Did I answer the question? All I think you answered asked something else about 
well, I was I was asking just about learning about about learning tunes. Oh, uh, right. Just be, I, the reason why is because I think that um, for you, you know, like you learn a lot of music. You have to learn a lot of music. But somebody who say is just sort of getting started, or you know, they're they're they haven't really done a lot of touring work. They haven't had to learn a lot of tunes. And then all of a sudden it's like, Hey, can you learn these 10 tunes by Friday? It's like, man, I don't even, I don't know how to really learn tunes, you know? Yeah. For me, I was always, um, especially if it's vocal music, um, or it really doesn't matter. I, I try to learn the melody. If it's instrumental music, I try to learn and sing the melody. And that helps me to, to learn the tune pretty quickly. Um, I don't just, think about the drum part, you know, I'm thinking about the whole picture. Um, and then you want to figure out how does your part fit in with what's going on in the rhythm section and maybe, you know, how is it supporting the melody? Mm-hmm. Uh, and just, you know, listen down, think about those things. Um, and then just start playing along and, um, and just really internalize um, what the form is and what the melody is. and and just go from there, repetition, repetition. And then it just kind of becomes part of you. That's, mm-hmm. that's what has always worked for me. Um, if, uh, do you try to, do you try to keep, do you sort of try to make it sound like the record or the live version, or do you make it, you sort of make it your own? Like, especially with, I mean, with Steely Dan, you're learning, not only are you learning a ton of tunes, but you're learning a ton of tunes from a bunch of different drummers. Right. And that had, I mean, that's gotta be challenging. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I'm I'm such a fan of everything that Steely Dan is about, especially those older records, and and just um, you know, with all those session guys at the at that time, I, it's it's so special because um, because of all the details, um, and because Steely Dan uses you know odd phrases and jazz harmony and. Um, from that, you know, because they're 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 both jazz lovers, but then the, the rhythm section is really an R and B rhythm section, you know. So you're putting all that stuff together, all that stuff that I love, uh, that we all love, you know, is just putting it all together in a way that that is that is Steely Dan. I mean, it's so unique, um, and learning those details, uh, you know, year after year, I still go back and I. I'll take a listen to the original and, and um, I'll hear something that maybe I didn't hear before. Cause there, there's, there's so much subtlety in there. That's, that's beautiful. You know, that makes it work. Right. How it all works together. Uh, no one's just strumming chords. I mean, everything has a part, you know what I mean? Like every instrument uh, has a purpose in the way it works together. Mm-hmm. And that that's, that's fun. That's, it doesn't get old. Um, so, you know, I guess, to answer your question, um, over the years, I, I certainly start by trying to play as closely as I can to the original and learn the parts um, as best I can. And then over time, uh, it just kind of becomes more of my own, I guess, uh, naturally, without thinking about it too much. But, um, you know, I mean, I've always tried to be me where I can, you know, mm-hmm. like like in like in Asia or something where there's a drum feature. Um, I never wanted to try to do what Gad did. And I just, you know, as much as I love that track and it's, it's just awesome and classic. I, 
I just figured I, I, you know, they want me to do something different with it. And, um, as with any other tune that maybe has some kind of feature, I just try to find something each night that, um, that's like my one chance to kind of improvise and just do what I feel at the time and try to make it different every night, you know? Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, it has a shape and it has, you know, a certain number of bars that never changes, but I try my, I try to just kind of find new things, you know, even if it's just subtle, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, um, so that's fun. Um, and then just, I didn't, I, I think I'd be, I wouldn't be able to play something different, but that's why you play silly Dan and I don't. Ah, well, (laughs) You know, um, I think that because it's such a monument, it's like every, you know, it's such a monumental, uh, well-known drum part, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I keep the body of the tune pretty close to, um, what Gad plays. It's just the solo part where I'm like, well, I'm just going to change it up a little bit. Cause I, you know, I don't want to try to sound like gad because i can't you know what i mean it's right like, that's that that was what he did that day in the 70s in the studio and it's amazing and you know it's an incredible track and um but they they never requested that i learn his part they they just you know was they were always cool with me doing my own thing so i i just kind of went with that right um i'm sure if they weren't happy they would say something sure. so just you know, and I, I just you know find- i'm sure they want you to be authentic and you know not be the the Keith Carlock version of Steve Gadd, you know. Yeah, well, you know the um, the you know going back to what you were you were saying, like what to practice. I, I always I always think a lot of people um, forget about shuffles, you know. And there's so many because there's so many shuffles in Steely Van Steely Van music. Mm-hmm. It just I just started just thought of this, you know. It's um, the, you know the Purdy thing, the Purdy shuffle, and and there's so many of those that we play and. Um, and uh you know Picaro on black friday and and that kind of rock shuffle and there's reeling in the years and um the more rock shuffles and then the halftime shuffles with purdy and and you know it's it's it seems to be such a lost thing that doesn't happen as much in pop music those type of feels you know mm-hmm. um at least you know i'm not up on a lot of things all the time but um because uh, I have kids now and I just, I just hear like, um, you know, like Peppa Pig show and whatever, <laughs> whatever, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not, I'm just saying, I'm like, like, I'm not like out there listening to every little thing that's out there, but it just seems that over the years, those aren't as, aren't played as much. And, um, so I, I don't know. I just, I love shuffles so much that I, I kind of, I practice those a lot. Was my There's point. so many of, and like so many variations and like feels and, yeah, yeah. yeah it's it's and and i i do a lot of 16th eighth note type music so it's nice to get away from that and 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 work on that stuff too someone told me and i i'm i'm making up this statistic because i don't remember the numbers and i don't want to i don't want to put the wrong information out there but it was something along the lines of like every top 10 record in the last 30 years had a shuffle on it Oh really? Yeah, something crazy about like there's something about every fa- every popular record, and there's like w- at least one shuffle on every record, on, on every one of those records. Like that's how influential and how and how uh, entrenched shuffle music is. 
in mm-hmm. in our society and like in our music and we don't really pay it to, like because everybody's like oh shuffle blues eh, i don't like blues right exactly yeah. you know and you're like well it's not it's just a it's a feel it's not it's not just blues um i'm gonna look I, i'll look up the stat though because i want to i want to make sure that i want to have it right but it was something it's something crazy like that that like maybe like every 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 top 10 record in the last 30 years had a shuffle on it or something like that yeah i mean i'm just kind of my favorite music is the 60s and 70s and part of the 80s you know so there's a lot of it in there for sure um but as far as like recently i have no idea right I'm, but um <laughs> you know, but it's, it's, i won't hold it against you i don't know what he, i don't i don't know a lot of uh newer stuff either so <laughs> i i can't i i have no room to talk um so i want to we're we're running long and i want to be cognizant of your time so I, I guess one question last question would be if we we sort of talked about the changing of technology and we talked about how it's definitely not the way that it used to be and you have to sort of go about things differently what would you suggest for people now who are trying to break into this business they want to make the connections they want to or the way that you do, they want to, you know, work with high level artists the way that you do. What would you, what would be some of your advice for them? Well, I mean, obviously you got to be where the industry is and, you know, I chose New York. Um, you know, you're just going to have more opportunity, obviously. So, you know, either, either you're in LA or Nashville or New York, number one. And then I think, um, having something on your instrument that obviously we're talking about drums on the drums that, uh, that kind of grabs people's attention in some way, uh, makes people talk about you, create some kind of buzz, uh, you know, even for me, I, I chose New York because I, I, I love, I mean, I was, I was intimidated by it and that was attractive to me, but, um, the city, and, but I, I, all the players that I were list, mostly listening to, um, were coming out of New York and I was just a fan of so many of the studio guys there. Uh, I mean, I love the LA guys too, but I was just more attractive to New York as a city and, um, and that's what I chose to do. But, um, I think just having a sense of what what it is you want to do. I mean, I know that sounds kind of obvious, but I, you know, I really wanted to go to New York because I wanted to be around um, music that was creative, that that had some kind of improvisational side to it, that that gave me that chance to search that side of my playing and. Um, and playing with Wayne gave me that, and I was lucky that that happened. Um, but that was what um, started the whole journey for me. And I think just having some kind of plan, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, that's that's what happens. You know, it just kind of snowballs from there, and and being. Um, just being a part of some kind of community like that, that, that just, uh, you know, you nail a gig and it, people like you, they talk about you, they recommend you. And just, that's just, 
um, as old school as that sounds, that's, that's the way it worked for me. And that's, that's how I see it. Um, and, yeah. if we were putting a bow on it, I would, you know, sort of, you're saying, get in, get in the, get in the area where the industry is and literally just start networking and start playing gigs and start meeting people and let one success sort of lead to the next. And then you get that gig and then you talk to somebody else about this gig and then you hustle to the next one and, and that's how you get it. Um, basically, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I mean, yeah. you gotta have, uh, people skills. <laughs> you know? sure. and yeah. I, th I think, I think a lot of people wait for the things to happen. You know, they like they wait for the gigs to come rather than like, it's like I, I equate it to like going to the gym. Like if you want to lose weight, go to the gym. Right. You know, don't like wish that you went to the gym go so i think a lot of a lot of things uh with gigs especially after doing so many of these interviews and knowing from like my gigging experience like just go out and meet people and talk to them and play gigs and get one gig and then after you get that gig try to get another gig and then after that gig try to get another gig i mean that's that's the only thing that i um that's that's how i did what i've been able to do and that that's all i know um and and I think it's still valid. I mean, I really think that's, you know, this this getting likes and things on the computer is cool, but I don't know if it's real or not. What's real is getting out there and going face to face, meeting the people that you admire and letting them know you exist and make it happen. You got to make it happen for yourself. I right. mean, it's not, it's not going to happen if you don't do that i don't see how it can um but i'm sure eventually something will prove me wrong but that's I, i'm just a strong believer in, in just the real factor you know sure. you sort of you like we said using the technology as the tool but like, right. don't let it replace the the human element the human connection of, of going out there and making it happen for yourself yeah and and uh and music being you know, played in one room together. Unfortunately, that's doesn't happen as often. You know, sure. it's crazy. Yeah, but that is that's that's a whole that's a whole nother uh, podcast. That was true. That we'll <laughs> uh, but Keith, <laughs> I want to uh, I want to thank you one for for taking the time to do this for and two for everything that you're that you're putting out into the drumming world. Man, you've been a force in this industry for a while. It's been a pleasure to to keep an eye on your career and the things that. You, that you've done uh, over the past couple of decades. So really amazing to have you on the show. And I, I really do appreciate you being a part of it. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And, and thanks for what you're doing for the community too. It's, it's really, really great. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. Anytime, man, anytime you want to, uh, you want to come back or if you have some, some new happenings going on, uh, definitely reach out and we'll get you back on. Sounds good, man. Thank you. Perfect. Keith. Thanks again, buddy. All right. Take care. All right. There you have it, the one, the only Keith Carlock. You can find the show notes by going to drummersresource.com forward slash session 656. And if you dig the podcast, if you enjoy it, do me a favor, leave a rating, leave a review. I would love to hear your thoughts on it or shoot me an email. I'm at nick at drummersresource.com. 
And also, I don't know if you know this or have heard me talk about it, but it, it's really easy to search for episodes on the website. So my advice is if you go to the website, scroll down a little bit and there's a giant search box there and it's a really dynamic search tool. So you can look for whoever you're wanting to listen to, whatever episode you're wanting to listen to, and then you can go to your phone and, and go ahead and listen to it. You can search on your on Drummer's Resource on your phone as well. But the reason why I'm telling you that, I think it's, it's not as easy to search on Spotify and, and Apple Podcasts and all that. So check that out at drummersresource.com. Other than that, that's all I got. So until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening and I'll be talking to you soon. Peace. Drummers Resource is produced by Revoice Media. Executive producer Nick Ruffini, that's me, edited by Justin Thomas, video editing by Tomas Shannon, and graphic design by Catherine Wade. For more music and entertainment podcasts, be sure to check out revoicemedia.com.